This reading is a selection of verses from Genesis 1-1 to 2-3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And it was so. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. And God said, let there be light in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky and give light on the earth. And it was so. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock of all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And it was so, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. <clears throat> By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had done. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work he had created and that he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Max. Uh, my name's Daniel Long. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And one of the things I'm just extremely grateful for this morning is that we have a community of people that make this whole thing happen, this thing that we do together that we call church and worshiping God. Um, and I was extremely grateful just seeing Pete up here, Jason, Max, um, you're gonna be, Esther's going to be leading us in the bread and cup. Um, and we're also going to be having Jonathan Anderson uh, preach to us this morning and really hearing from what God has had to say to him and bringing it to us um, as God's people and what that might mean for us in the world. And I wanted to just let you guys know that we're kind of transitioning this summer into an opportunity where we're going to be hearing um, from a bunch of different people as they preach to us. Jonathan's going to be the first, and there are going to be a few other voices. Um, Jesse Cromer is going to be preaching, Eric Balmer, um, Steve Porter, and, and others. So it's a really great thing to be a part of a community where people can just exercise their gifts, and we can be blessed. Um, so with that, I just wanted to introduce Jonathan Anderson, and would you come up here and speak to us, please? 
Well, good morning to all of you. Good morning. Uh, I have great love for this church. It's such an honor to be up here uh, uh, sharing with you this morning, talking with you this morning. So this morning's passage uh, is the opening into the biblical canon um, with the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We're launched into a particular understanding of the world and of its history. Um, and it's a familiar passage, this one, uh, and I, I often wonder if it's the wrong kind of familiarity that we have with this passage. Um, I wonder if sometimes our familiarity actually blocks our entryway into the biblical canon, into the text, makes it inaccessible. After all, familiarity is one of those things that can move in two different directions. Uh, I mean, there's the kind of familiarity that actually narrows uh, the depth of attention and contemplation and imagination that we're able to give to a thing or a text. A familiarity in which the presumed meanings uh, dominate our readings and flatten the text into more or less what we already expect to hear. It's a familiarity that allows us to pass by and to pass over most of the aspects of our lives. Um, there's another richer familiarity, however, one in which every word and phrase and detail of a thing or a text becomes so charged with meaning that each time we return to it, it reveals new, unexpected connections, opens into further questions, intuitions, insights. Uh, the first kind of familiarity is necessary for not being totally overwhelmed with life. It's a good thing in so many ways. Um, but out of necessity, we uh, keep from being overwhelmed with life by needing to flatten the world and flatten the meanings uh, of those objects of familiarity. The second kind of familiarity is actually very difficult to achieve. It uh, requires a great deal of labor um, uh, and, and time, but I think it's also where life's, some of life's richest blessings and meanings reside. So this morning, what I want to do is reread with you Genesis 1 and 2 and see if we might be able to break apart some of the first uh, kind of familiarity, um, which I think, frankly, has produced a lot of really bad reading of Genesis 1 and 2, if I can say that, both within the church and the popular culture at, uh, at large. And I want to see if we can generate a bit more of the second uh, kind of familiarity by which we invite the text to stand forth uh, with greater dimension and density of meaning. Uh, I, I want to assert uh, that the central goal of Genesis 1 and 2 is not to give us a play-by-play -play explanation of how the world was created. It's not a lesson in physics. It's not a, uh, a straightforward story about how things went down at the beginning. Its central goal is to activate, though it does do that, I'm not contesting it, it's just not the central goal. And maybe to a great extent, it doesn't actually do that. Its central goal is to activate and overhaul our theological imaginations about what the world is and what it means what human life means in this world. That's the central goal of Genesis 1 and 2, as, as I see it. 
And thus the central demand that the text makes on us is that we approach it with a deeper, more curious, more rigorous imagination, I think. Um, we sometimes associate the word imagination, that might be a stumbling block for you, because we uh, associate the word imagination with the sort of projection of fantasy and non-reality, unreality. Um, but there's something much more I have in mind in using the word imagination. Imagination is the ability to perceive intelligible connections between things that we can't experience all at once, all at one time and to, to um, perceive and reorganize the patterns of possibilities within those connections and within the world. In other words, briefly put, imagination is what uh, gives us the ability to see the world as a world. Uh, it, is, it is necessary for perceiving reality, for being in the real. So uh, maybe a couple examples. Uh, the United States. What is the United States? You know, it's close to home here. It's a good example. What is the United States? It's not actually something that's directly perceivable. You can perceive parts of, like, geographical locations. You can perceive parts of its laws. Uh, uh, some of the people who are involved in the United States, present in the United States, citizens of the United States, and non-citizens. Um, but the United States is itself a very complex geographical, economic, political, cultural, linguistic reality. And for uh, it to have any intelligibility to us at all is an enormous act of imagination. Uh, not projection of unreality and of uh, fantasy, though sometimes. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, sometimes. Um, but uh, uh, to, to perceive it as a, a real entity in the world. And this business about the imagination being an access to the world actually applies throughout all of the disciplines. I think, I think that um, uh, Albert Einstein was one of the most imaginative uh, people in the 20th century. And that imagination caused him to be able to see connections and reorganize the meaning of those connections. And it allowed him, and uh, by extension us, to perceive the world more accurately. Same is true with the writing of history, understanding of history, or sociology, or whatever. Um, there's, in other words, I'm, I'm moving towards a, a, a kind of idea of the, of the faithful imagination. Um, I use the term theological imagination as an extension of that, which I think is the ability to conceptualize the world as a world in relation to God. The theological imagination is where uh, each aspect of life uh, starts to gain meaning and depth in relation to God. Um, and... Uh, for that reason, I think that at its deepest level, the work of theology has less to do with doctrinal propositions that we mentally affirm. That's important. That's all important. And much more to do with our overall sense of the way that the many disparate aspects of life find their intelligibility and their meaningfulness in relation to God. That's the work of theology. And at that level, we are all theologians. There's no, there's, it's not possible to not be a theologian. It, 
and that includes atheist theologians <laughs> and agnostics and so forth. Um, it has everything to do, theology and the theological imagination, has everything to do with the way that we do or don't make our way around in the world as though the world and all things in it has its being in relation to God. Um, as a side note uh, to that, and this is a much too long preface, <laughs> Genesis 1 or 2, uh, but as a side note, um, as I see it, I think one of the greatest needs facing Western Christianity today is the development of a deeper, more cultivated, more faithful theological imagination. The crises of faith that many of us experience and that we experience in Western culture more generally is more than anything else a crisis of imagination and a failure of imagination, a failure, a, a dysfunction of the theological imagination, a weakness and brittleness of the theological imagination. It's a crisis in which our dominant popular theological imaginations of the world and of human life have come to appear to many people as thin and contrived, reactionary, and utterly familiar in the first, most negative sense of the word. Um, I, I, think, I think that Christianity continues to dwindle in North Atlantic countries and will continue to dwindle partly because a Sunday school theological imagination pervades and is really cemented in our society, um, and it is just simply often overwhelmed by more compelling imaginative worlds and senses of the world, uh, whether that's through university education or mass entertainment or whatever. Uh, and um, to be perfectly frank, uh, because of that, I wonder if, as noble as it is, I wonder if what the American church really needs is a more accessible gospel more familiar, uh, kind of weakly imagined gospel, I, I, I have the sense that what the church needs more than anything is a deeper theological imagination, one that makes its way around in the world with greater depth and, and um, uh, um, meaning. Um, and one that is committed to wrestling with God and wrestling with Scripture with the, the, all of the resources of our imaginations, faithful imaginations. Okay, is that okay? That's a much too long preface to uh, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, but, uh, you know, <laughs> oh well. Uh, uh, so, then the, our question on the table uh, today is how are passages like Genesis 1 and 2, this opening into the biblical text, meant to world our imaginations and to world our lives? Yeah, I'm using world as a verb there. Uh, that's right. That's right. Um, and I think to answer this question, we have to recognize that this text is meant to function uh, within the dominant theological imaginations of the ancient world. It is, I think, a radical text that is taking up ancient ways of understanding the world and understanding human history and uh, deeply revising and reimagining them. Um, and I think uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's reimagining the world for us. I'm borrowing a metaphor from John Walton, uh, who's an Old Testament uh, scholar, who is influential in what I'm going to say 
after, uh, hereafter. John Walton, uh, uh, G.K. Beale, um, uh, uh, Ian Proven, Rick Watts, they have all been really influential to what comes after, so uh, you can go track down those uh, 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 on your own. But borrowing a metaphor from John Walton, he argues that what we have in Genesis 1 and 2 is not a house narrative, but a home narrative. And he distinguishes it like this. If you were to come over to my house and you say, oh, I love your house, you know, tell me about it, I could tell you a pretty extensive story about legal zoning and building codes, how concrete is mixed, uh, how lumber is, uh, uh, you know, the trees are turned into two-by-fours, the proper way that this happens, and plaster and lathe, and I could tell you a sociological story about 1951 and all, you know, the young families of people returning from the war, and on and on and on, and it would be a really dumb answer. It might be really good and informative and true, but it wouldn't answer the question that you had. You were asking a home question, not a house question. Uh, a home question or a home answer, home narrative, might go something like, uh, my wife Natalie and I have lived in this home for 11 years. We, we love this home. Uh, my wife chose this color in our living room. It's the most beautiful color uh, ever. Um, <laughs> This room is so wonderfully full of light in the mornings, and I usually sit here and I write in the morning because you know the, the glory of the world is shining all around me. Um, uh, that photo over our fireplace is by uh, our dear friend Kurt Simonson. It reminds us uh, on, on a daily basis to live lives that are open-hearted and marked by. Um, uh, honesty and truth uh, and, and uh, life-giving uh, uh, efforts towards each other rather than being marked by secrecy or insecurity or so forth. And I could tell you about that. I would tell you about my, this is my cat, Frances. She's, she's, uh, she's the most wonderful cat ever, that God ever made and so forth. Right, those are two really different responses, a house narrative and a home narrative. And what Walton, and I agree with him, uh, uh, what he wants us to, uh, the way he wants us to read Genesis 1 and 2 is as home narrative. And we tend to read it as house narrative. Um, they're home narratives. They don't explain the physics of what the cosmos is or even how it was made, I think, as much as they tell us what it means and what it does. Uh, these texts do... Uh, um, do this, I think, by giving us two distinct but interlocking images of the world, both of which portray the temple or the, the cosmos as a temple. That's, that's what I want to uh, uh, spend the rest of the time on. Genesis 1 and 2 give us two narratives. Um, uh, uh, I mean, you read Genesis 1, and then it kind of reboots at Genesis 2 and tells the narrative again, or a different narrative. And both of them, I, I want to sort out, is, is that uh, are contending that if you want to understand what the world is and what a human being is in the world, what human life means, you should understand the world as a massive temple that pervades all things, and the human being is the image of the God in the temple. And in, a, in an ancient context, that is absolutely explosive imagination. <coughs> Uh, let's see if we can unpack this just a little bit. Um, uh, 
In Genesis, the world is created through seven movements, which the text refers to as days. I don't really see any good reason to uh, uh, sort of assume that these are 24-hour days in the ways that we experience them. That doesn't seem to be what the text has in mind. Rather, these days are movements in which there are distinct acts of establishing architectural divisions within creation and then filling and furnishing those spaces. In the ancient world, it's significant that several, uh, uh, several kind of uh, ancient um, uh, religions, if we can use that word about ancient cultures, uh, in several ancient religions, temple dedication ceremonies often lasted seven days. Uh, so when the text takes up this seven-day movement, that's, that's, that is doing something really uh, potent, really powerful in an ancient context. What we have here is the establishment and dedication of a temple. The narrative opens in verse 2 with an existence that's formless and empty, tohu vabohu. And then creation unfolds through acts of separation, whereby the cosmos is formed into meaningful architectural divisions, I think, which are then given names, day, night, sky, sea. God names them and gives them specific roles. And then these are filled and furnished, these uh, spaces, into what you have here is the establishment of inner and outer courts of a temple. Day one gives us the separation of light and darkness. Uh, the ancient author doesn't have in mind here like what physicists think of today as light and darkness. Rather, it's durations of light and darkness. That's why God names them day and night. It's durations. What you have in day one is um, the establishment of the most basic human experiences of time and temporality. To find ourselves here during the daylight is immediately to call forth memory and um, imagination for the times in which we'll find ourselves at night. This is about duration and time. Day two um, then separates the waters into the vault of the sky and, uh, and the sea. It, is, in other words, establishes the basic creaturely dimensions of upward and downward. Space, in other words. And when connected to the temporality of day one, these watery domains of above and below also provide the essential domains uh, of weather and the essential uh, um, components of weather. Day three then separates land and water, producing uh, for us home, a place that is inhabitable, versus an over there that is not inhabitable. Um, and uh, this Im immediately then gives way, once again, in, in the context of um, time that we get with Genesis, uh, or day one, uh, here we get the flourishing of plant life. It is a, it is a, a flourishing home and inhabitable place. So these first three days here uh, establish the essential domains of human existence, the inner and outer courts of the temple. Now and then, above and below, the habitable here and the uninhabitable there. And within these domains, all of the essential generative engines for life 
uh, are, are flourishing. And they, once again, form the courts of the temple. And so what you get in day four through six is then a filling of these courts. And they correspond to the first three days. Uh, the vault of the heaven is filled with lights. And it is, in an ancient context, it's unbelievable that Genesis 1 refers to the sun, moon, and stars as lights that are there to tell time. <laughs> so that's, that's so offensive in an ancient context in which those are gods. Those are the manifestation of gods. Genesis 1 uh, refers instead to the stars and the uh, sun and the moon as though they are the lights in the temple, the menorahs in the temple. Um, we get uh, the creation of the creatures of water and sky. The waters are teeming and the sky is teeming with life, uh, which if, if, we, if we had time, we would compare this to uh, um, Israel's temple in which the temple is full of plant life. It's essentially a, a garden. Uh, and you get uh, the creatures of the land then um, uh, created in day six. And the last thing, and I'm going to skip the, the Egyptian images, uh, the last thing that goes into any ancient temple is the image of the god in that temple. And I could show you some images, but uh, I don't have the time to do it. We won't do it. And the image of the god is meant to be filled with the spirit of the god and to mediate God's presence in the world um, and is, uh, is a kind of representative of the god's rule over the whole region and, and over these people. And so image of God is a very reserved term in the ancient context. It's reserved for this object that is supposed to be filled with the spirit of God, or we do have some references to living images in ancient contexts, and it's almost always the king. The pharaoh is referred to as the living image of God. In fact, uh, you know, you guys know Pharaoh Tutankhamun. His name literally means the living image of Amun, Ray. That's, that's, it's the pharaoh. So within an ancient context, Genesis comes along and says, no, no, no. If you want to understand the, the, uh, what human life is, uh, you, should, you should treat every person around you, including the slaves that are building your pyramid, Pharaoh, as with the kind of respect that is deserving of the image of the god in the temple. Do you understand how like that's from an imaginative point of view? That's just, it blows, it blows the doors open. Day seven, the final movement, uh, tells us this, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished his work, and on the seventh day, he rested. The language of resting or ceasing on the seventh day has nothing to do with God's fatigue. It has to do with enthronement. That's ancient language for the king finishing and being enthroned, resting in the temple or in the palace. Palaces and temples are always kind of wound together. So what we have here is the creation of a temple, all the earth as a temple. Uh, God uh, sets up the image of himself in the temple, which is all of you, and commissions you to make images of God, not through pictures, but <laughs> through procreation. 
Make images, by all means, make lots of them. <clears throat> um, and then God rests and takes his throne, present, being present in the temple. Um, uh, and we could see this, we have examples here. Uh, really, Genesis and Exodus are to be read as a kind of unit, I think. Um, and Genesis opens with this, and uh, Exodus ends with the building of the tabernacle, and we're supposed to read the, t the building of the world and the building of the tabernacle as linked. They're models of each other. We understand the world as a tabernacle, and we understand the tabernacle as a model of the world. Uh, and there's all over, we could go into this, we don't have time, uh, but all over the place uh, we get these parallels. Uh, on the seventh day, God finished the work and he rests. Uh, at the end of Exodus, uh, Moses finishes the work. It's the same phrase. It's used very rarely in the Old Testament, but it, here it appears in both of these places. Moses finishes the work of the tabernacle and God rests on the tabernacle, is enthroned on the tabernacle. Um, and this language of, of um, temple, creation as temple, runs throughout the Old Testament. It's all over the place, and I'll just allude to it in a few places. Isaiah uh, 66 uh, says outright, uh, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, where's the house that you'll build for me? Where will, be, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so that they came into being? And then the rest of the Old Testament really cascades into all of this temple language. Uh, the text over and over again refers to the foundations of the earth. That freaks us out because we're like, well, what about Galileo? You know, <laughs> does it have foundation? It's temple language. It's, um, it's reorienting our imaginations for what this place is and means. It's not a claim that the earth is set on foundations in a, in a kind of literal sense. Not literal, concrete sense. It talks about the foundations of the earth, the pillars of the earth and the heavens. The heavens are like a tabernacle canopy or tent or vault. The windows, uh, it has windows in the heavens, the storehouses of the earth, and so on and so forth. This is all meant to reorganize our theological imaginations. Now, I'd love to get into Genesis 2 as well. I'll do so very, very quickly, and then, uh, and then we'll wrap up. Genesis 2 then backs up. I mean, in Genesis 4, uh, um, the, the narrative kind of stops, backs up, and tells it again, or gives us a different kind of image. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God, which is the first use of the word Yahweh Elohim, made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth. The Lord God formed the human, Adam, from the dust of the ground, Adama, and breathed into him the breath of life, and the man became a living being." Genesis 2 essentially tells, retells, a, or tells another image, gives us another image of the world, and says, okay, Genesis 1, if you want to understand what the world is and what it means to be a human being in it, the world is like a temple, and you should treat every human, as, and including yourself, as the image of the God in the temple. Yes. Genesis 2 gives us another image. Uh, the earth is a garden temple, and 
what it means to be a human in this world is to be a priest of God in the temple. Your role as a human is to care for, guard, and cultivate the temple. Cultivate the earth, cultivate creaturely life as though it is absolutely sacred in all respects. That's, I think, the message of Genesis 2, really briefly speaking. And there's all sorts of uh, things I could appeal to to support that, that it's a garden temple, it's a high place, uh, um, it's full of all kinds of trees. This is ancient language for temple, garden temple. It has a gate that faces the east. That's where they're, they're kicked out and so forth. Um, uh, but we'll, we'll kind of draw this to a close here. Um, the Genesis narrative in 1 and 2 has an enormous commonality with ancient Near East creation narratives, but it also has an enormous discontinuity. It revises the theological imagination of the ancient world, and if we can kind of get inside of the ways that it's doing that, it, we find it should, and has, has for me, revised my theological imagination for the world today, where I am, what I'm doing, what my life means. In all other creation narratives at the time, the world is brought forth through primordial violence. All of the other ancient, narrative, uh, ancient creation narratives, there's some kind of violence that brings the world into being. Splitting of Tiamat, cutting her into halves, and you get the sky and the, the uh, water, and so forth. Egyptian narratives is this rupture of the one into the many, and so forth. But it's rupture, it's battle. Genesis contends that the most, the deepest reality of life is a peaceful giving of the one God. That is just radical. All of us have to grapple with what we think is the deepest reality, the deepest reality, and you got, you got kind of two choices. The deepest reality of existence is either violence or it's peace. And I think we live, now we would all say, we live in a world in which the deepest reality is peace that's extraordinarily, is riddled with extraordinary violence but we have to decide what is the deepest thing because it shapes, it changes how we go about living our lives. Um, secondly, uh, I think this is directly uh, linked to another insight, namely that God is one and not many. All aspects of creation are creaturely and God is the source of all of them. In other words, it's not divine warfare and battle. Um, uh, thirdly, Genesis sees people, sees you, the people in this room, your neighbors, uh, every person you encounter in life, as the focal point of creation and as profoundly sacred um, that uh, we see, should see people in our lives as with as much holiness and love as though they were the images of God in the temple. And your life is one that is commissioned to bless the world, to guard the goodness of creation, to cultivate it, make it sing God's praises, 
make the whole thing resonate with the praise of God as though it's the temple. So you're both reoriented toward the people around you and reoriented within yourself. You're given a calling, a very high and holy calling. Um, and within that, we do that work during the rest of God, God's rest, God's enthronement. We rest on the seventh day, not because we're mimicking the way that God rests, but we rest on the seventh day because God is in charge of the world. If he's enthroned, I can rest on seventh day. <laughs> um, and lastly, I'll end with this. Uh, there's, there's, I think, an implicit, which I've been alluding to, an implicit politic inscribed in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, there's a reorientation toward the people of the world as people and toward the creation, the natural world, the cultural world as temple, as such. There's a reorientation toward all of it. With this, if this stuff really gets inside of our imaginations, our theological imaginations, it reorients us and calls us to, I think, um, lives that risk and wager all of themselves on uh, the idea that uh, the deepest reality is peace and God's love for the world and for people. So in the end, these are very ancient narratives, but I think they're, they're very pertinent today. They're very relevant today. Uh, the meaning of them can't in any way be relegated to an ancient past, and they can't ever be sort of... Um, familiar in the bad, uh, negative sense of the word. Fam so familiar that they become thin, sort of ancient fantasies. <laughs> I think they're as profound as ever, and they cut to the heart of the questions that are most basic to our theological imaginations. Where are we? What are we? They force questions that appropriately challenge my theological imagination. What would it look like for me to live my life as though all of creation were the temple of God? As though God's greatest desire for us is to live fully human lives together in shalom, in temple practice. That doesn't mean do something else. It means live all of it as though it's temple practice. And what would it look like for us to love our neighbors as though they were the most sacred image that we have available to us, the image of God uh, in the temple, the image that God has, in fact, made for himself. Uh, pray with me, and then we'll... And then I'll get off the stage, <laughs> finally. <laughs> Father, we're thankful for the gift of life. We're thankful to be here, to be given into the world and to be given into a world that is yours and that is very good. And we recognize that there's, there are various poisons that are coursing through our veins and coursing through our imaginations. We confess that our imaginations are idol factories. We ask you to uh, invite us more fully, more deeply into the, into the calling that you have for us to serve as priests over this creation and to image your goodness and your love uh, in the world. Would you please um, uh, assist us with this? In Jesus' name, amen.